And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode, where we took a look at one of my all-time favorite Japanese giant monster movies, Monster Zero, as well as um, issue 10 of Marvel Godzilla. And we got a good show for you today. We're going to be taking a look at yet another classic from the Daikaiju genre. We're going to be taking a look at 1961's Mothra, the original debut film of everybody's favorite uh, insectoid monster god from the South Seas. We're also going to be taking a look at the next issue, continuing ongoing saga of Marvel Godzilla with issue number 11. A couple of uh, items up front here. We learned on August 7th of the passing of Haru Nakajima, and Nakajima truly a giant in the world of Daikaiju, uh, the, of course, legendary suit actor who played Godzilla starting in the original and played Godzilla all the way through uh, Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster in 1971. Uh, Nakajima also played Rodan in the original Rodan. He played the larval form of Mothra in Mothra, which we're talking about today. He played King Kong in King Kong Escapes. He played Mogra in The Mysterians, Varan in Varan the Unbelievable. He was Gyra in War of the Gargantuas, and many, many other uh, genre films. In addition to his suit acting work, Nakajima also appeared in straight face acting roles in uh, Dogura, Latitude Zero, The H-Man, The Human Vapor, and some non-genre um, films, including the um, uh, Kurosawa films The Hidden Fortress and Yojimbo. Um, Haru Nakajima, he, he apparently passed away due to complications from pneumonia, and he was 88 years old. So just a little salute to one of the all-time legends in the field. And I would like to take this opportunity also to plug the documentary film Men in Suits, which can be found online. Um, this is a film all about, as you might as you, the name suggests, suit actors and the work that they did in Suitmation. And there's a lot of interviews and um, information about Nakajima in that film. So I heartily recommend you check out Men in Suits if you want to learn more about Haru Nakajima. And uh, just a salute from Earth Destruction Directive to the man who brought Godzilla to life for a long, long time. And uh, one of the true greats. On a happier note, I'd like to also give a shout-out to Professor Alan Middleton, who is the uh, one of the head honchos over at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, he of the Quarterbin Podcast fame. Uh, Professor Allen sent me a care package. He sent me f uh, a whole dollar's worth of Dollar Bin comics, so I really appreciated this. He sent me an issue of the Gold Key Tom and Jerry. He sent me an issue of the old Uncle Scrooge, which features... A, a Karl Barks story, The Great Riverboat Race, so very, very cool on that. He sent me an issue of Cerebus, and if you'd like to hear the professor and I discussing Cerebus, you can check out the final part of his massive Episode 100 spectacular over on the quarter bin. And he also sent me the Marvel movie special for The Deep, which is a comics adaption of the film, which is an adaption of the Peter Benchley novel. So very cool. Thank you very much, Professor. 
Uh, you may hear an email from Professor Allen later in this very episode, but you can check him out at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Thank you very much, Alan. And uh, that's about all the news I have today. If anyone else has any giant monster-related news they would like to send in, go ahead and send it in to earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and we'll get that information out here to everybody else to hear. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back to cover Mothra. Hey, Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm, I'm just a little confused lately. I, yeah, what else is new? Well, you know, m- more than usual. I tried to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we having trouble finding them. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and, um, <laughs> oh, you took the words you know, right out of my mouth. They're, they're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. You know, you got to go to the feed. You got to go to the Back to the Bins feed. The Back to the Bins feed? What's yeah, that? Back to the Bins feed. You got to go to iTunes, you look for, look up Back to the Bins, and you subscribe to the Back to the Bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on... Alright, so if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm going to go on to iTunes, and I'm going to click on Back to the Bins... And I'll find Back to the Binge and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed. You subscribe to the show. You subscribe to whichever show you want. And then you get it. It's that what simple. Sh- you just gotta go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the Binge. Where? And Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on what? TwoTrueFreaks.com. You want them, uh, you get them. They're you all got there them? For you. All the uh, shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so... Feed. The feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Uh, Scott, could you tell him... Hey, man, don't, don't drag me into this, because uh, it's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Mothra was released on July 30th, 1961 in Japan. It was released the following year in the U.S. as Mothra, under the same title, by Columbia Pictures. This is one of three Toho Pictures that Columbia distributed in the United States. Our director is Ishiro Honda. Our writer is Shinichi Sekizawa. Our music is by UJ Koseki, an odd um, credit here, not Akira Ifukube, as we are usually used to hearing the music being done by. Special effects by Eji Tsuburaya, and our producer is Tomoyuki Tanaka. In the waters off Infant Island, a presumed uninhabited site for Rolisican atomic tests, the Daini Genyu Maru is caught and run aground in the turbulence of a typhoon. A rescue party following the storm finds four sailors alive and strangely unafflicted with radiation sickness, which they attribute to the juice provided them by the island natives. The story is broken by tenacious reporter Zenichiro, also known as Bulldog, and photographer Michi, who infiltrate the hospital examining the survivors. The Rolisican Embassy responds by co-sponsoring a joint Japanese Rolisican scientific expedition to Infant Island led by the capitalist Clark Nelson. Also on the expedition are radiation specialist Dr. Harada and linguist-slash-anthropologist Shinichi Chujo and stowaway reporter Bulldog. 
Shujo has studied the cultures of islands in the area and ascertained that one of the key hieroglyphics in their written language, a radiant cross-shaped star, translates as Mothra. What Mothra is, is unclear. On Infant Island, the team discover a vast jungle of mutated flora, a fleeting native tribe, and two young women, only 12 inches tall, who save Chujo from being eaten by a vampire plant. The Shobajin, small beauties, as Bulldog dubs them, wish their island to be spared further atomic testing. Acknowledging this message, the team returns and conceals these events from the public. Nelson, however, returns to the island with a crew of henchmen and abducts the girls, gunning down several natives who try to stop them. While Nelson profits off of a secret fairies show in Tokyo featuring the girls singing, both they and the island natives beseech their god Mothra, at this point a giant egg, for help. Bulldog, Hanamura, and Chujo communicate with the young women via telepathy. They express conviction that Mothra will come to their aid and warn that good people are sure to be hurt. Meanwhile, Bulldog's newspaper has accused Nelson of holding the girls against their will. Nelson denies the charges and files a libel suit against the paper. Meanwhile, on the island, the egg hatches to reveal a gigantic caterpillar, which begins swimming across the Pacific Ocean directly towards Japan. The caterpillar destroys a cruise ship and survives a napalm attack as it stays on its course for Tokyo. The Rolisican Embassy, however, defends Nelson's property rights over the girls, ignoring any connection to the monster. Mothra finally arrives on the Japanese mainland, impervious to the barrage of weaponry directed at it, ultimately building a cocoon in the ruins of Tokyo Tower. Public feeling turns against Nelson, and he is ordered to release the girls. Nelson flees incognito to Rolisica. The Japanese self-defense force attacks the cocoon with the atomic heat ray weapon, and they believe to have killed Mothra. But the monster soon hatches in a moth or imago form, and immediately resumes her search for the girls. Police scour New Kirk City <clears throat> for Nelson as Mothra lays waste to the metropolis. Ultimately, Nelson is killed in a shootout with the police, and the girls are assigned over to Chujo's care. Church bells begin to ring, and sunlight illuminates the cross atop the steeple with radiant beams, reminding Chujo and ha reminding Chujo and Hanamura of Mothra's unique symbol and the girls' voices. Chujo hits upon a novel way to attract Mothra to an airport runway by painting the Mothra sigil in large, large letters across the uh, the runway and then ringing the bells as loud as they can. The girls are returned to Mothra amid salutations of sayonara and Mothra flies back to Infant Island. This is just such a classic. It, it's, it's a great little movie. Um, and, and as we'll talk about when we get into the notes here, it really gets overlooked by a lot of, uh, of Daikaiju fans because of what comes after it, but it really holds up really well. This was a, a, a joy to revisit this one after watching the Rift Tracks uh, earlier in the year, getting to watch it straight. So let's go ahead and get right into the notes. Um, this, there's a storm to open our story here, and this is a common opening that we would see repeated in other uh, Daikaiju films later on beyond this. But besides the storm, there's some other common elements which crop up here that would be repeated and used again. The idea of radiation testing on, a, on an island, often, very often infant island, a strange juice on an island that is used for various purposes. This was Shinichi Sekizawa's debut 
on the uh, as a screenwriter and his debut in the genre. And he would go on to write many, many more scripts for um, for Toho for their uh, genre films, their daikaiju movies as we go on. And these were experiences that. Uh, strange things happening on a South Seas island was apparently in line with what Sakazawa experienced during World War II because his experience was being stuck on various islands, not having any food and strange things going on. So these are elements that are common to a lot of his scripts, and they did, they're, they're really served well. I, you know, I, some of them are more obvious. The storm is one that you see a lot, but the idea of strange juice actually crops up numerous times in his works. And I never really put two and two together until I was started when really just comparing some notes and saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, so really a, a strong debut, debut from Sekizawa here. Now, Infant Island in the dub is referred to as Beiru Island. It's only, the name is only said a few times. Now, if you have the subtitles on, on the uh, Japanese version, they, they call it Infant Island. So the island would always go on to be known as Infant Island, sometimes called Mothra Island, but the name Infant Island stuck in Beiru Island was, was quickly um, forgotten and consigned to the annals of trivia. There we see for the first time in this film uh, the long shot, long establishing shot of Infant Island. This was a very common, typical shot that would be used many times in the following years. It'd be used in Godzilla vs. the Thing, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. Pretty sure it's using Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. Just about any time Mothra is on the island, we'll get this same establishing shot of Infant Island. Uh, the other nation involved with Japan here is a fictional nation called Rolissica. And these are very clearly uh, a stand-in for the United States. All of the Rolissicans are uh, portrayed by uh, Caucasian actors, and uh, they speak English, and the main city is New Kirk City, which looks a lot like New York City. Um, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting relic that they're, you know, they want to have a Western villain but at the same time, I think Toho was cognizant that they want to sell this to the United States, and maybe you don't want to have your evil businessman be American, so they kind of sidestep the whole thing and keep him Rolissican. It's kind of interesting that this is never revised in any, um, this, this has never changed around or in any of the later you know, re-releases of the film on various formats. They never change it to American and call it New York, New York City. It's always New Kirk City. So, you know, um, it, it, in, in one of those ways that this was, you know, you know, uh, here in the days before King Kong versus Godzilla, this is, they're still kind of in the feeling out period for exporting their films to the West. And, you know, this makes sense. This was, you know, having a, um, you know, having a, a Western villain, you know, but not wanting to alienate anyone. And, and I think it's also interesting that some people I've read that this is only in the dub. This is not true. This is Rolissica and New Quirk City in the Japanese original as well. So interesting to know. Um, Chujo's son, when we see Chujo, um, he meets with uh, Bulldog at Chujo's house. Chu uh, Chujo's son is wearing a, a uh, red baseball cap that says, has an interconnected TC. And I did some research on the uh, Japanese professional baseball, and I'm pretty sure that this is a cap for the Hiroshima Toyo Carp, I think. Now, the carp wear red, so a red cap makes sense, and TC is the only one that makes sense for the Toyo Carp. Um, but normally their hats look like the Cincinnati Reds hats. They've got the stylized C like the Cincinnati Reds. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I did some research into old, like, 60s uh, Japanese baseball, and I couldn't find a hat that exactly matched his. But the only one I could think of would be the Toyo Carp. So that's an interesting touch there, you know, kind of equivalent to, you know, we'd see a... Uh, wearing a Brooklyn Dodgers cap or a New York Yankees cap. Just kind of thought it was interesting. Another Japanese cultural aspect that crops up is when Bulldog um, sneaks onto the boat 
and uh, his, uh, you know, deception is revealed, they go around and everybody's giving out business cards. And um, if you've ever uh, worked as a Westerner with uh, a Japanese um, firm from a professional standpoint, business cards are a very important thing. And they're very, how you handle your business card etiquette is very um, very crucial. And this was, I just thought this was funny because business cards are treated with a lot of respect in, uh, when, when, if, if a, if someone hands you their business card, that is a very personal thing and you can't just like stick it in your pocket. You have to, you know, be very, uh, respectful of the business card because they are showing you respect by giving you their card. I thought that's, that was funny. It's just a little thing like that, that, you know, we don't think about so much here in the U S but, uh, has more meaning in the Japanese original. While they're on the ship and getting ready to debark onto Infant Island, we get uh, some interesting stuff showing all the different radiation protective gear that they're wearing, including, um, you know, the helmets and suits and that they have alarms on them and radios. Uh, you know, we, the, we, the, the cliche is for, you know, gear and hardware and mecha to always be kind of fetishized a little bit. And typically from a military standpoint, this was kind of like doing that from a civilian standpoint. And again, of course, you know, um, radiation protection suits for people that were now making films in the early 60s. These were things that they remember and saw as soldiers and as, uh, you know, young men and women growing up. So this is very salient uh, for the, the Japanese experience at this point to put a lot of attention onto that. I just like they're, they're well designed, too. They, they look like they legitimately could be radiation suits that are still functional in a jungle environment. Uh, while on Infanon, of course, Chujo is attacked by the vampire plant. This is uh, of the class of movie carnivorous plants that is just a bunch of vines that grabs onto people. And then there's a stagehand off, off screen, uh, you know, um, slinging them back and forth. This is a classic movie trope of a vampire plant. Very cool to see that crop up here. And then the vampire plant uh, attack is sort of helped by the arrival of the twin fairies, the Shobajin. Um, they are not called the Twin Fairies in this film, but that will always be the Twin Fairies to me. Now, they are achieved primarily in this shot, and for a lot of the shots in this film, through a double exposure technique. Uh, best known, I would say, to American audiences in the science fiction genre for the work of Bert I. Gordon. For films such as uh, The Amazing Colossal Man, Empire of the Ants, and, um, you know, other, other Gordon films that feature giant things. In this case, they're using it to make them appear smaller, where they're double exposing uh, the frame of the, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the Shobajin shot with a background plate and then, you know, superimposed on it to make them look smaller. Um, they also get a full-scale doll which doesn't work as well. Uh, we don't see it very much. Basically, when Nelson grabs one of them, you can see he, it's right in front of the camera for a second, and then he kind of turns around so you don't see it. But it's clearly just a full-scale doll, and it's got some motors to make the arms wave around a little bit. It doesn't work very well, but it's only kind of a fleeting shot. The double exposure works much nicer and is more what we would come to expect for how the Showa films especially would handle uh, the effects for the, for the twin fairies here. It's interesting that Bulldog is the one who dubs them the Shobajin, and uh, in the dub he says, oh, these beauties, and Chujo says, beauties, huh? And Chujo's re er, and uh, Bulldog's response is, unless they're terrible, they're beauties. And so Bulldog, always the newspaper man, knows that <laughs> you want to sell copy, you gotta, you gotta talk them up. Now, of course, they are uh, played by uh, the Peanuts, and um, they're a, a pop-singing duo from Japan who actually had uh, some success in the U.S. with a cover of them, a cover album of them singing kind of U.S. standards. And they are, um, you know, very attractive young ladies, and they, they play their, their roles in every film except Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster in the Showa era that they appear in. And they are, you know, really a well-known part of the Mothra mythos and of Daikaiju genre here in the U.S. People know that Mothra has the two tiny fairies. 
And uh, as we learned many, many moons ago with uh, Daimajin, you never mess with the priestesses, young or old, you know. So uh, let that be a lesson to you, uh, Nelson. Um, there's a good shot here also of when Nelson grabs uh, one of the fairies. All the natives suddenly appear out of the jungle. And I always am kind of a sucker for these scenes where it appears that, um, you know, the, the forest just comes alive with, with all the natives that were there and we just didn't see them. I always like that. It's it done very well here. Nelson's attitude, you know, many times in the Godzilla films, we get an evil businessman, and Nelson is one of the sleaziest. I mean, he grabs the girl, and he immediately wants to take them, and, you know, his, his attitude is, well, we'll shoot our way out of here. He's willing to mow down all these natives just to get these girls to bring them back. In fact, one of his, one of the, the only other Rolisican, who's one of the scientists, he joins everyone else in saying all Westerners as evil, just Nelson for being a greedy businessman. So I, I like that a lot, that, you know, even the, the Rolisican scientist, the Western scientist, is shown to be a good guy. Scientists and reporters are often our heroes in uh, Showa Daikaiju films because in, in the au of the Daikaiju film, scientists and reporters seek the truth. And so they operate along similar lines. They just seek the truth in different ways. And businessmen don't seek the truth, they seek profit. So that's why they are often at odds with uh, scientists and business and scientists and reporters who are our heroes. Now, when Nelson comes back after they return and they keep all this stuff a secret, Nelson comes back with a small expedition and does in fact shoot his way out. So he kind of told us what he was going to do, and uh, they actually shoot down uh, quite a few natives on their way trying to escape with the fairies. It's uh, it's all very bloodless, but it is it is a it is a little shocking from a violence standpoint in what is otherwise. A fairly fantastical film, but you know it's putting over just how awful a person Nelson is. He, he really is an awful, awful dude that does this stuff. So, um, in Tokyo, Nelson puts the girls on a stage show in a nightclub because it's the '60s, and that's the most '60s idea I could think of. Is you found these two 12-inch tall girls on a South Seas island that apparently talk with the telekinesis or excuse me, talk with telepathy, let's put them in a nightclub and have them sing in charge of mission. It's, it's, um, the stage is made up to look like an island and it has dancers dressed up like the natives, which is, you know, nowadays would be called cultural appropriation. And it's, I, I think it's intentionally kind of ridiculous that, you know, this is this artificial version of the culture of Infant Island. And it's being presented for entertainment purposes because Nelson doesn't care about the culture of Infant Island, doesn't care about the fact that he stole these two girls and killed dozens of people in an attempt to make money. But what uh, what Honda does, which I really like, is he cuts between the the, the Secret Fairies show and the act the natives praying on Infant Island. So as the fairies sing their song, which is their prayer to Mothra, it also cuts to the natives praying to Mothra and doing their ritualistic dance, which is much different than the dance, obviously, that the dancers are doing on the show. But it's showing that what Nelson has done is create a mockery of their culture and using it to to make money. Whereas here, there, you know, this is an a, their actual depiction of their culture, and uh, bad things are going to come from from him making a mockery out of their culture. Interesting at this point, as we learn about what Mothra is from the fairies, is that the dub refers to her as her. So I, I even said it there subconsciously saying her. So it's always been kind of a debate is whether Mothra is male or female. Uh, when I was a kid, Mothra to me was always male. As I've gotten older, I've tended to lean more towards the female side. I guess the idea of, you know, the birth and um, death cycle and, you know, the laying of the egg and all that kind of suggest a more uh, maternal approach. 
so I tend to think of Mothra as a female. It also seems to fit the character better being female rather than being more aggressive male character. But, I mean, it's up for either, to way, either way. Now, the dub does have, I think, one or two instances of, of calling Mothra him. But again, it's, you know, it's monsters tend to be male. I, I'm still going to lean more on the Mothra being female, unless otherwise specifically contradicted. I want to say some of the Heisei Mothra films specifically have some of the later offspring of Mothra being male. But for this one, I'm going to keep Mothra as a female and use female uh, pronouns for her. Now, back on Infant Island, uh, during the prayer, we see the egg crack. And I always, always am a fan of seeing eggs crack. We talked about this back in Rodan, and it's a very similar sort of shot here. The egg is much more colorful, of course. It's all pastel yellows and blues. But the egg cracking is always this, you know, great bit of uh, foreshadowing of bad things coming whenever the monster egg cracks. And it's, it's nice to see it here. Anytime a monster hatches out of an egg, I expect to see those spiderweb cracks going all through the shell. And uh, they don't disappoint here. Now, after Mothra hatches, of course, uh, she is in her caterpillar form. And the caterpillar form here is very similar to what she would look like for the rest of the caterpillar appearances in the show of films. And really in the Heisei, there's only so much you can do with the design. It's mainly a giant caterpillar. Um, now, Haru Nakajima is actually stuffed inside this suit to move it around for some of these sequences, which is, when I learned that, I was amazed because I had always assumed that the larval Mothra was a puppet. Um, and a lot of times it is, but there are some sequences where he's actually in there, so uh, good on him, good work for that. Um, as Mothra makes her way across the ocean, she sinks an ocean liner. Now what's interesting about this is that this is not like Godzilla blowing up the ocean liner with his atomic breath in, in Gojira, or, you know, um, you know, other, the immediately thing to mind is the beginning of, uh, of War of the Gargantuas, where Gyra sinks the ship. This one, the ship happens to be in the way. And Mothra goes right through it. Now, Moth, that's that's what really separates Mothra from the other monsters and the other films made into this era, uh, up, up to this point in the era, is that Mothra is not malevolent. Mothra is on a rescue mission, and it just so happens that this boat is in the way, so she plows right through it and sinks the boat. It's it's very immediate. It's not a long sequence. It's very quick. They see it. She hits it, and down they go. And it's, you know, that's one of the... Um, the immediacy of a, of a ship being scuttled to that degree and taking on that much water and going down. Very, very well done. Um, after that, the, the SDF comes and they drop uh, flammable liquids and firebomb Mothra on the, um, uh, on the surface of the water, because Mothra swims, of course, on top of the water, bopping along. Um, this, uh, you know, it, we, we'd see this every now and again. It's always fun to see a nice effects tank sequence like this. And fire is one of those ones that some people get kind of nitpicky on because fire doesn't scale. But I think it looks good. And, and again, this, this is not a film that's obsessed with realism. I mean, let, let's face facts here. You know, that this is definitely a fantasy film, and so I'm willing to accept that. It's a well-done sequence. Mothra, of course, plows right through it. I mean, obviously the fire is only really kind of around Mothra because we don't want to, we don't want to burn the, the prop. We need the prop here, so. But it's a well-done sequence, and, you know, a lot of... You know, again, a common element in a lot of these films in this era is the, the uh, attack out at sea on the monster before they make landfall. Now, once Mothra does make landfall, uh, she crashes through the dam. And this is a, a fantastic sequence of Mothra going right up to the dam and just kind of pushing her way through and causing a gigantic flood as all the water's held back behind the dam. Um, you know, uh, rush forward. I, I had to laugh because we not too long ago covered uh, Godzilla destroying 
the Hoover Dam in the comic, and now we've got Mothra destroying a dam here um, in, in, in Mothra. Now this also leads to one of the best scenes for Bulldog, and Bulldog is, I haven't talked much about him, I'm talking mostly about the film on a technical level, but Bulldog's a really good character because he's, Bulldog is played actually by a Japanese comedian, whose name of course I don't have here, so I don't have my, my book in front of me. So he's kind of a light character, but he has some really good moments, and this is one of them where everyone's evacuating across the dam, and we see the family pulling their big cart, and the baby is in the bassinet on the back and falls off. And they get over and they realize the baby has fallen off. And Bulldog sprints out there, grabs the baby, and brings him back in safely. It's a great little bit for Bulldog, who has acted very heroically. Yes, he's out for a story. Yes, he's called Bulldog because he never lets go of something. But he has made the right moral choice every time it's been presented to him. He sneaks into the hospital because he wants to find out the truth. And, and, you know, see what's being covered up. He sneaks onto the boat to do the same thing, to make sure that the truth is known. And then when they find out about the fairies and stuff, he keeps it covered up because he doesn't want um, outside agencies to go to Infant Island and cause trouble. So, and now here he is just doing something, you know, risking his life to save a baby. So he's a good guy. And even though he looks kind of like the Japanese version of Lou Costello, uh, I like Bulldog quite a lot. Chujo's a good character also. He is, uh, you know, more of a standard scientist type. Actually, he would return playing the same role many years later in the Millennium films in Godzilla, Mothra, Mechagodzilla, Tokyo SOS. So I thought that was interesting that Chujo actually does make a comeback. Now, after the dam sequence, Mothra heads out into the countryside and we get a, a really nice set here for the uh, for Mothra to destroy because it's the countryside, it's not a city. And so it's complete with you know, little, like, farm trucks and cars and stuff driving around as he just, Mother just makes his way straight through the village uh, heading towards Tokyo. I thought that was really neat. You know, we did get some more rural-type settings uh, already in the series. The Mysterians comes to mind immediately as one. Um, obviously, the village in Varan, which was a little more primitive than this, but it was just a nice, especially in color, this is such a nice little countryside model that uh, Mothra gets to rampage through and, you know, shrug off the attacks of various tanks and jets and such as, as she makes her way through. Really well done. Now, the one of the main sequences that is best known from this film is the sequence in Tokyo where Mothra climbs up a Tokyo Tower and pulls it down and then spins a cocoon around Tokyo Tower. And uh, th this gets um, reused in Godzilla vs. Mothra from 1992. This is a very iconic image of the character of Mothra and this film in general, spinning the, the web around Tokyo Tower. You know, Tokyo Tower often gets destroyed in these films. It is one of the tallest, you know, and most recognizable landmarks in the city of Tokyo, so it's just more prone. Now, this scene also brings out the next step in our what we've seen as the evolution of the radar dish style weapon in these films from the Markalite cannon. We talked about last time the A, the A cycle light ray gun, which actually comes a little after this. But here we get the atomic heat ray gun. And again, these are kind of half track weapons with a big satellite dish style uh, main gun, and they shoot a big optical effect beam. In this case, the beam is bright red and orange because it's supposed to be like atomic fire. These never show up again as we continue on the evolution towards the Maser Cannon that eventually becomes kind of the, uh, the final stage of this. But these are really nice, and I always liked them. And I, I think I have up in, I think I have up my bonus room a little, I've got a series of mecha 
um, you know, little Gashapon mecha toys. And I think I have the Atomic Heat, right? It's very nice. They get two of them, and they blast from alternate sides. And they make a, a big deal over them of wearing your eye protection because it's atomic uh, energy, so you don't want to look directly at it. I thought that was kind of funny, considering we just went through all this over this past summer with the Eclipse. So we all know all about don't look directly at the really bright right ear. And after, of course, the, um, you know, the... the the burning and the seeming destruction of the cocoon, we get the emergence of Mothra's most beautiful and famous form, her imago, or moth form. And, um, you know, we had to expect that if a giant caterpillar comes and spins a cocoon, it's going to turn into a giant moth. So it's not really a surprise from that sense, but man, it's so well done and so well realized. Now, Mothra as an imago is always a puppet, except for a few times where it might be animated if it's shown really far away. But it's it's a puppet here, and it's a really good job. And, you know, we've talked about before um, the slow wing flap that we got with some of the Heisei films especially. Mothra's wings are not super fast here. They're not beating as fast as a real um, uh, moth, obviously, would. But... The, uh, they, they move fast enough that it seems a little more convincing than some of the really slow up and down that we'd get in the 90s. Here, it looks much more convincing, and I, I think it's a great job. Um, and, and as she flies away, you know, it really does look nice. It's one of those things that, you know, there, there's an anecdote, and I think this was in... Um, which one was this in? I want to say that this was in... Oh, it's one. It's it's uh, the history of the, the Godzilla filmography book that McFarland put out, and I'm trying to remember the author. And I will add a I will add a note because I cannot remember his name right now. But it's a great book. You can get it from McFarland uh, Publishing, and uh, they talk about how you know um, when Trendmasters brought out their Godzilla toys in the 90s, Mothra was one that they had trouble selling and was difficult for kids to identify as a monster. And I always kind of get that, that Mothra is a monster, but she's always a good-aligned monster. Even here, she may be chaotic good, but she's still good. She's doing the right thing. So, um, uh, it, it, really great debut here. And the effects keep keep up with the, the puppet, because as Mothra gets to uh, New Kirk City, um, the hurricane-style winds that are created by her flapping her wings are... Excuse me, a step even above what we got several years earlier in Rodan. Now, Rodan saw buildings being torn apart and roofs being ripped off. Here, we've got uh, cars being thrown around like Tinker Toys. It almost looks like she's creating tornado style winds instead of a, you know, hurricane gusts, the way that these cars are just being blown around. I can only imagine, um, you know, the guys uh, at the effects crew getting like leaf blowers and stuff to really direct these winds and blow these models around. They're really nice. Um, I, I, I commented on this, I think, during the Gaiden for the Rift Tracks, but man, that, that just looks so cool because it's so, so much more pronounced than it was in Rodan. It really puts over just how much wind she is moving and how much destruction she's causing just by searching for the Shobajin. She's not even out to cause uh, carnage. She's just creating it just by her being there. I thought that was really well done. I mentioned New Kirk City. It's very much supposed to be New York City. It's got a big bridge. It's got a big bunch of skyscrapers in the skyline. You know, it, like I said, it, it's interesting to have a Western villain without alienating your potential American audiences. So I, it, it's just kind of a funny relic because, you know, we'd um, obviously as we went on, we would not have fictional nations, you know, other than, you know, Saradia in Godzilla vs. Biolanti. But, you know, hey. Uh, I, 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 they, they stuck with it all the way. They didn't change it in the dub, and it's not something the dub introduced, so I'm on board with that. 
Uh, Nelson runs into his downfall. He has just been on the run and on the run and doing everything he can to keep these girls because he sees all his profit margins going up. And I said before that Nelson's violence in shooting the natives was a bit, um, a bit, uh, you know, kind of out of place almost. Well, here, you know, Nelson's downfall, he actually shoots a police officer and then is gunned down by another police officer. So again, it's all bloodless and all that. And I ended up watching most of this with my oldest boy and, and it didn't face him at all. But it just seems, like I said, a little out of place in a movie that's so much kind of a fantasy adventure to have, you know, some uh, fairly realistic gun violence. I mean, realistic insofar as, you know, a film from 1961 that got a G rating. So it's it's all, or a PG rating. I don't know if a PG even exists then. I don't know. That didn't, it basically, it's, uh, you know, a, a family movie from 1961. So do with that as you will. Nelson gets his, though, in the end, as all good evil businessmen do while desperately trying to escape with their profits. That's how he gets his, and that is the way it should be. Um, there's a great effect after that with Mothra flying over a giant suspension bridge and having it collapse. And there's always something cool about a suspension bridge being collapsed. You know, Rodan does kind of a similar thing where he flies over it and the, uh, um, uh, the pressure wave from the force of him flying by is enough to, uh, bend the bridge and pull it down. It's very similar, but it's really well done. It just looks really cool. And again, this, you don't remember a lot of the disaster effects in this, or the destruction effects, I should say, because this film kind of gets overlooked a little bit. Uh, but it's really well done. The back half of this has just some really good effect sequences, even if they're not necessarily the focus of certain scenes like they are kind of in Rodan or something like the Mysterians, which focused a lot more on the carnage aspect. Uh, we get a happy ending as Chujo and Bulldog and Amichi reunite the Shobujin with Mothra. They all say sayonara, even inviting them to come back if they want, which is, that to me kind of seals kind of the fantasy aspect of this over, you know, what had previously been done as far as making the monster movies a approaching horror. This is, you know, clearly the wrong has been righted. The girls have been returned to uh, Mothra, and Mothra is taking them back to their rightful place. The villain is not Mothra in this in any capacity. Mothra creates destruction because she's trying to do the right thing because Nelson, the real bad guy, kidnapped the girls, which he shouldn't have done. All of the destruction that Mothra creates is laid at Nelson's feet, and it should be because he tampered with stuff he didn't understand, he was warned not to do it, did it anyway, and now he had to pay the consequences, and it's unfortunate that a lot of innocent people had to pay the consequences also. Nelson got his, so at least justice was served in that respect. So, Now, Mothra is, to me, it's an unjustly overlooked film in the Toho Library. I think this is mostly because its direct sequel, Godzilla vs. The Thing, from 1964, is much better. And that's kind of damning it with faint praise, because this one is still really, really well made. It's a lot of fun. It's a monster fantasy mashup. It's more adventure than horror. It's really well suited to that type of genre. And uh, it would become kind of the template for how these films were made. You know, uh, of, of all the pre-King Kong vs. Godzilla films that Toho released, it deserves to be held in the same regard as Godzilla and Rodan. I mean, admittedly, it's a different style of film than those two films, but it's still a classic, you know? And like I said, this would become more of the template for how they would make these films going forward, starting with King Kong vs. Godzilla, which very much falls into the monster fantasy adventure mashup. And then the films coming after that all kind of fall in line with this. Now, part of that was because of uh, Sekizawa and his script here, which contains many elements, which, of course, would become hallmarks of the genre. And as he wrote more and more of the Toho uh, Daikaiju Iga, they would tend to drift more towards his strengths and become more 
fantasy than horror. And I think it did this the series really well because there's only so many times you can have the monster on the loose and have it be a really kind of dark and and um, you know scary type of story. And the strength of going to these types of stories meant that when we got back around to redoing those stories later in the Heisei Millennium and now even films like Shin Godzilla, they have more strength to them because now we can contrast them with the lighter films and bring them back to the original darker films. So Mothra herself is extremely well realized both in Caterpillar and Imago forms. Story moves along at a really fast clip. There's no lulls in this. It's just bang, 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 point, point, point. It's just, frankly, it's just strong, well-made entertainment, and it's suitable for the whole family. This is just a really, really good film, and I had a lot of fun revisiting it here. Now, if you would like to own Mothra, you've got a couple of options. Now, on DVD, you can get the Icons of Science Fiction set, and I mentioned at the top of this segment that Columbia released this and two other uh, Toho films in the U.S., and that's what this box set is. So it's Mothra, The H-Man, and Battle in Outer Space, which are the three that Columbia released. Now, this set is real nice. It's a three-disc set. Each film is presented both in the original Japanese format and the dubbed English format. This includes a sequence, um, there's a couple of sequences in the three films where they had to do a minor reshoot for the American version, and they actually have the correct one in the American one and the correct one in the Japanese one. Uh, the H-Man has one, and I think Battle in Outer Space has one. Um, and this is $9.96 on Amazon. That's a really good deal if you're interested in getting, you know, some of these harder-to-find um, you know, Toho uh, genre films. Now, if you don't, if you're not interested in the H-Man or the Battle in Outer Space, you also can get what's called the Sci-Fi Creature Classics set, which has Mothra, now, 20 million miles to Earth, it came from beneath the sea, and the giant claw, so you can get an Earth Destruction Directive movie and three um, Bots, Bugs, and Babes movies, you know, all together, um, you know, for one set. And that is $5.78 on Amazon, so if you want to pick that one up instead. Now, that only has the English dub of Mothra. There's really not much difference between the English and Japanese. There's a few, I think, minor cuts here and there. There's nothing that impacts the story. There's no additional scenes or anything like that. So if you want to just get, if you're not interested in the Japanese one, that'd probably be a better bet if you just want to get Mothra because, frankly, you're also getting two other amazing Harryhausen films and The Giant Claw. So that's a pretty good rate on return. Of course, if you want to go digital, you can always buy or rent Mothra in its uh, dubbed form on uh, Amazon Digital as well. So really, I enjoyed this, and I enjoyed covering it here. So I, I hope you guys liked it. So why don't you guys write me in? What do you think? Do, what do you think of the original Mothra? Does it deserve um, the uh, the overlooked reputation that it has? Or is it kind of a, one that's kind of, you know, uh, just as good as its fellow brethren? Uh, Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. Write me and tell me what you think. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Eons past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Alright, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. 
Marvel's Godzilla number 11 was cover dated June 1978 and was released on or about March 7th, 1978. This information comes courtesy of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which of course it can be found at dcindexes.com. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey, and it depicts the three-way battle of the behemoths between uh, going from uh, left to right across the cover. You have Red Ronin, who is tangling and grappling with Yetrigar, and then Godzilla, who is blasting Red Ronin with atomic breath. And then in the foreground, we've got four uh, rafters on a uh, raft about to run right on into uh, our three monsters who are fighting. Uh, very cool cover from Herb Trimpey. Um, our writer this issue is Doug Mensch. Our penciler is, again, Herb Trimpey. The inker is Fred Kida. Our letterer is Irving Watanabe. Colorist is Mary Titus. Editor is Archie Goodwin. And our title is Arena for Three. And our synopsis today comes from marvel.wikia.com. As Godzilla and Yetrigar's battle rages on in the Grand Canyon, Rob Takaguchi arrives in the Red Ronin to try and stop the two beasts from fighting each other. Rob's actions inadvertently uh, expose some rafters to danger who have to, and they have to scramble to avoid being crushed by the two giant monsters who continue to battle on. Elsewhere, the S.H.I.E.L.D. Godzilla squad continues to make repairs to the behemoth, so Dum Dum Duggan and Gabe Jones travel in a small airship to try and keep track of Godzilla. Back at the Grand Canyon, Rob is unable to make the two monsters stop fighting, and in order to prevent Yetrigar's rampage from escalating, he is forced to use Red Ronin to kill Yetrigar, by burying the beast in an avalanche. During the confusion, Rob allows Godzilla to slip away. However, the fact that he had to kill in order to protect Godzilla weighs heavily on the board. Next issue, the Mega Monsters. Mm, yeah, this, this is kind of a kind of an odd issue. It's it's a little disappointing in a lot of ways. Um, I'll, I'll get more into it here. That that synopsis was really not that great because the the Rafters subplot actually takes up a fair amount of the 17 pages of the book. And what it is basically is we've got these rafters that are, you know, that we, we kind of got uh, tipped off about them last issue. But they're trying to um, escape away from the monsters uh, as they're battling at the Grand Canyon because they were rafting on the Colorado River. And they are constantly put in danger both from the monsters themselves and from Rob piloting Red Ronin. And at the end, they're picked up by Gabe and Dum Dum in the, in the small shield craft. So... It's a, they're, they're getting a little short shrift here, but, but let's get right into the notes here. Uh, the cover, as I said, was the three-way tussle between our stars. Uh, the humans are larger on this cover than they have been on previous covers, both in this series and in the Shogun Warriors, which usually uh, depicted the humans as very small. I wonder if that's because the humans play a bigger role in this issue. They're not just bystanders running away. They actually have names and, and, and a small subplot. I don't know if that, that's just kind of speculation on my point, but um, the only thing I could think of is maybe the proximity that they have by showing them larger. It's as though they really are underfoot of these monsters. They're not, you know, running away and the monster's, uh, you know, uh, looks, you know, is huge because it's a huge monster, but they're relatively far away here. They're right on top of the action. Um, page one is our splash page. It shows Godzilla and Yetrigar falling into the Grand Canyon, which happened um, in last issue, of course. Very, very nice sense of scale here. And I said this last time, I really like the sense of scale using the Grand Canyon because uh, both the monsters, as big as they are, are dwarfed by the Grand Canyon that they're falling into. And I think that's really neat. And we do get to see, once again, Trimpy using the tiny human figures on the splash page for scale as we've got 
uh, a car with a camper behind it and then several people standing around it either watching what's happening or running away. So we get to see the scale really well here. Uh, pages 1 and 2 are a recap of the last issue. And that's fine in a monthly, and I understand that, and that's kind of, you know, a stock and trade with a monthly comic from 1978. It's a little redundant here, where we're reading them, you know, relatively quickly. And, you know, uh, and it's only 17 pages. This book is, is short to begin with, and we literally have two pages taken up with a recap. And, you know, and then the, the page three is, you know, not much new information, because the last page of last issue was Red Ronin landing, and so now this is Red Ronin landing again, and Rob starting to, you know, uh, you know, congratulate himself that, that he got there in time and that he's going to stop him from fighting. So we've already used, you know, almost a fifth of the uh, length of the book here in, in recap and setup, and so there's a lot, you know, the, the whole thing feels kind of rushed and crammed, and uh, that, that unfortunately kind of carries on for the rest of the story. Uh, pages four and five... Uh, the battle just absolutely rages back and forth among all three combatants. What I like here is that they're all evenly matched with strengths as, and, and weaknesses, which is what we would expect from a three-way monster fight, you know? Uh, Godzilla is, has his atomic breath, and uh, Red Ronin has his blade, but Yetrigar can, can leap, and he's really agile, and he can use tools because he throws rocks several times. So I like that. They have the relative strengths and weaknesses of these monsters, and so it's a good uh, back and forth. Trimpy is right on his game with this stuff. I've, I've said many times that, you know, Herb Trimpy um, gets a, uh, a rap sometimes for not being the best superhero artist because of the style that he does uh, faces and he handles human action, but I've really enjoyed his monster action, and this sequence here is a, a very good example of that. So that alone well, was very cool, I thought. Um, page 5, panel 4, were introduced to our The Rafters subplot that I talked about. Now, what's interesting is that this whole subplot is very women's lib because we got two couples. And the, uh, you know, both, when, when their, their raft gets uh, grounded by basically uh, the, the, the tussle between Yetrigar and Red Ronin creates a uh, small avalanche, which, you know, basically capsizes the boat and casts all of the rafters onto the rocks. Uh, both the men are hurt. One of them gets a broken leg and one gets a broken arm. So it's up to the women to help to get them out. And so it's, it's this very kind of late 70s women's lib subplot. And it's, it's nice, but at the same time, it's also kind of fillery. Like I said, we've only got 17 pages. We've already used two of them for recap. And now we're devoting quite a bit of this story to this little human drama about these people escaping and getting out. I mean, the artwork is nice. You know, uh, the Trimpy does a good job on the, the Raging River, and uh, actually, I want to call out uh, Fred Keita's inks here also look real nice to kind of give the, um, you know, to the, the definition in the water. A lot of it's done with the inking, so it looks really good as you see the water kind of uh, uh, you know, splashing and rolling around because obviously, I mean, the Colorado River is, is not the most staid river in the world anyway, and now you've got three monsters, you know, splashing around it. It's going to cause a lot of currents. Keita's inks are also really nice on Yetrigar. And uh, Yetrigar and Red Ronin, actually. There, there's some sequences here as we go on to the, uh, the next page, on uh, page, um, page 6 here, that the um, page 6, uh, panel 3, where we see Yetrigar just walloping Red Ronin and knocking him into the, uh, knocking him into the wall of the canyon. The, the inks are really good. I mean, the very natural, I mean, we, 
we talk about it a lot here on Two True Freaks that the feathery inking doesn't work in a lot of ways. But here with Yetrigar, where he's a big shaggy, um, you know, Sasquatch type monster or a Yeti, if you prefer, uh, the the feathered inking works because he's hairy, and so it really gives a nice sense of him being of the the you know the, the fur on his body. And then you look at Red Ronin, and it, it uh, has a nice kind of rounded edge on a lot of the ink, so it really, he looks like a, a machine that's glistening in the sun. This is a very nice inking job from Fred Keita here over, over uh, Herb Trimpy. Now that same panel, as um, the panel above, uh, pa panel two, where the, the raptors are coming right to the feet of the monsters, you see Red Ronin has Yetrigar in a full Nelson, and Godzilla is roaring his defiance. And in great big letters, monsters, they're giant monsters! And as Yetrigar tosses... Red Ronin off, we hear Rob Takaguchi think, What? I thought I heard voices! Yeah. Rob's hearing voices all right. I hear voices in my head. They counsel me. They understand. They talk to me. Anyway. Moving on now to pages 8 and 9. This is the sequence of the book where Gabe and Dum Dum argue some more. Like they do in pretty much every issue. Um, I, I'm tired of these guys just being here for no reason. They, they serve very little purpose in the story. Other than the fact that, you know, they, they come and they do rescue the raptors at the very end. But S.H.I.E.L.D. has nothing else to do here. The only part I really like out of this sequence is uh, Dum Dum asks um, Howard's, what the, what's the damage? And uh, and uh, he says uh, he says he says well Howard's damage, and uh, Howard says you can say that again. I'm beginning to think the behemoth's jinxed, <laughs> and that is like the most accurate thing in this book. It's like this, you I mean you can't have obviously a helicarrier take out Godzilla every time, but this thing goes down with alarming regularity. I know it's kind of a modernist idea to have someone take out the helicarrier like the Hulk did it at the beginning of the Red Hulk. Um, story and stuff like that, but this thing, I mean, this is the 70s, and this thing's going down like every other issue, so I think Howard might be on to something here. 11, the middle three panels here, we get a very nice illustration of Red Ronin's uh, laser hand coming together, uh, but Rob Takaguchi, as usual, has absolutely no idea what he's doing, because he shoots Godzilla with it, and it bounces off of Godzilla's hide and creates another rock slide, which falls on the raft. And it's like, wow, you don't, I mean, it, it, it's become more and more evident. And, and my frustration with this character is becoming more and more pronounced. Because he has no idea what he's doing. But he keeps doing it. I understand he's got the best of intentions and all that. But it's like, you're, you're putting yourself and others in danger constantly. You don't know what you're doing. Please stop. And, and that, that he's supposed to be a hero that we're, as the reader, supposed to identify with is very frustrating. Now, admittedly, I'm not a kid reading this. But, you know, maybe that would be different. But reading it, I mean, coming to it, honestly, here, he, I'm just so tired of Rob Takaguchi. We get some nice um, character work from Trimpy on the rafters on the top of page 12 here. Um, the uh, uh, Mary, the girl in the front, has kind of a Sue Storm thing going on, which is uh, she's got the, you know, the, the hair kind of going in front of the eye. Very nice. Over on, um, on page 13, update, breaking news, Rob Takaguchi still no idea what he's doing. Because he, he wants to, uh, you know, he, he needs to defend himself from Godzilla, so he wants to give him just a love tap with the laser sword, and he slashes him right across the throat. And he's like, oh no, he stepped forward, we really slashed him. It's like, well, maybe if you didn't try to attack him with a laser sword, you wouldn't slash him. Again, just throwing that out there for whatever it's worth, Rob Takaguchi. <sighs> 
Then on the, the next uh, sequence here on pages 14 and 15, uh, Yetrigar does like a big flying Superman leap at uh, Red Ronin and knocks Rob out of the control helmet. So Rob Takaguchi's knocked offline, so it's back to just Godzilla versus Yetrigar for a few panels, and quite frankly, the comic picks up because the action is better without having Rob's stupid narration running through it about how he's trying to help and try to do this and try to do that. You know, we get a, um, a, this, a nice sequence of panels here where Godzilla chomps down on Yetrigar's right arm, and so Yetrigar slugs him in the chin with, his, with a left, and, uh, you know, so that's, that's a nice little sequence here. And they're just going back and forth. Godzilla doesn't have as much to do in this because it's mostly him and Yetrigar brawling, you know. We don't get any uh, attempted character insight. Rob is there to be the character, the identification character for the reader of this issue. So Godzilla is mostly just here to fight with Yetrigar. And Yetrigar, because he's more aggressive against Red Ronin, we end up seeing more of Red Ronin and Yetrigar than we do Red Ronin and Godzilla. Which is, which is kind of interesting, but, you know, it's okay. Again, uh, you know, monster mashes, you get this sort of thing. Pages 16 and 17, uh, this is the final uh, final s sequence of the book here. Rob decides he has to push it, because if he doesn't push the issue against Yetrigar, Yetrigar's going to kill Godzilla. So there was a very nice progression of uh, how Red Roan depresses the attack on Yetrigar and ends up burying him by blasting, um, again, blasting the wall with a uh, laser sword and bringing a big rock slide down on top of Yetrigar. But uh, on page uh, 16, panel 1, it's a big zwoosh as he slashes right through, right through the middle of Yetrigar. And, uh, you know, see, Yetrigar is just covered in light from the response. And then he hits him on the shoulder, and Yetrigar is actually covering up. Like, he's got his hands on the side of his head, and he's pulling his shoulders in, trying to cover up. It's a, it's a real nice sequence here. Um, we also get the rafter subplot resolved as uh, Gabe and Dum Dum come and rescue them, giving the S.H.I.E.L.D. guys something to do in this issue. Uh, and then, you know, after burying Yetrigar, Rob is very sad because, you know, wait a minute, say it with me, Rob Takaguchi has no idea what he's doing. And uh, so he wants to be, you know, save all these monsters' lives, but you're in a giant robot that's not designed for this sort of thing. It's designed and literally, literally was built to fight giant monsters. You can't use a, a, a weapon designed to fight giant monsters as a tool to protect giant monsters. It doesn't work that way. And if you are going to use it that way, attacking them is not the way to do it. Okay, so please, Rob, please go away, Rob Takaguchi. I, I don't mean to be mean, but this this guy is really starting to get on my nerves here. So, um, frankly, a disappointing issue. After this setup last time, we're really not given a full proper Godzilla versus Yetrigar fight. Instead, getting Red Ronin thrown into the mix. Now that in and of itself is not a problem because a three-way monster fight, again, one of the advantages of comics is, as we always say, there's no budget for what you're going to show, right? So three monsters would be cost just the same as two monsters. Why not have three? But Rob Takaguchi continues to be hung about this book's neck like an albatross. Every sequence that he is in drags this book down because it requires so much suspension of disbelief. One, that, you know, that this kid is able to outsmart everyone who's around him and pilot the Red Ronin and be even moderately successful enough to do that. That, allow, that alone requires quite a bit of suspension and disbelief. But then he just makes so many dumb choices and says so many dumb things that as a reader, I get very frustrated anytime I have to deal with Rob Takaguchi. Uh, any scene he is in, frankly, is, is worse just because he's there. The scenes he's not there are better because he's not there. And, and that, I don't mean to hang all this on Rob Takaguchi, but I really just don't like this character and would much prefer 
if uh, we had a character more akin to one of the Shogun pilots piloting Red Ronin, which to me would have been um, a bit more sensible choice. The subplot is alright, if a bit forgettable, and unfortunately it eats into the already kind of slim page count. Trimpy's art, really the main attraction here, is he does a great job showcasing the three combatants, their back-and-forth battle, and the Grand Canyon. I think he does a really good job on the artwork. And I know I've said this a lot about Herb Trimpy on this on this show, but I think he's really well-suited to this, and it looks real nice uh, just seeing his monster work and the monster combat he does a very good job with. Um, I'm hoping to get a bit more monster combat going forward and a lot less Rob Takaguchi as we get into, um, you know, we, we finish up this storyline and we move forward. So, as always, this issue is collected in Essential Godzilla. That's the only place you can find this collected. And, um, I, I, I'm reading again from the Essential, so I don't have the, the letters columns or anything like that, but, uh, but we're here to cover the story mostly, so we'll, we'll just call it there and we will take a look at what happens next time on the next episode. So what do you guys think? Have you guys read this story with Yetrigar and Red Ronin and Godzilla fighting it out in the Grand Canyon? Is there some, some great aspect of this that I missed? Or is this kind of a, you know, um, a great setup that is a little bit disappointing in the execution? Go ahead and send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Let's talk about that. All right, guys, I'm going to take a quick break, and we are going to be right back to finish up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes crossover events that can cost a hundred bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The quarter bin podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every Penny. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive, and now it is time for what I'm sure is everyone's favorite portion of the show, listener feedback. And if you would like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, you can send an email to earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, or you can reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook, and all of the contact information is found in the outro of the show, so let's get right to our first email. 
which comes from uh, my good friend in front of the show, and you heard his name a little bit earlier, Professor Allen. And uh, Professor Allen writes, Ultraman on EDD. Luke, love your coverage of Ultraman on Earth Destruction Directive. I have a few comments on the episodes you covered on episode 53. Episode 15. I thought this one was fun and interesting. As you pointed out, this was a very child-empowering episode. And our heroes at the Science Patrol weren't necessarily the heroes. They acted like grown-ups act, but that wasn't altogether helpful. There is a strange subtlety going on there. This is with uh, Gavadon, uh, the episode that with uh, the monster created from the children's drawings. And yeah, that was kind of the feeling I got too, is that the Science Patrol ostensibly are the heroes, but they really don't do much um, to affect the outcome here. And you make a good point. They act like grown-ups, which is to say they, they disregard what the kids want, but the kids ultimately have the intelligence and the uh, uh, the information that's required in order to, to you know resolve the threat of Gavadon. Episode 16, which is the uh, the, the Bolton episode, uh, one of the, the second Bolton episode, and uh, Professor says, this is only this is the only one, that in my rewatches I have specific recollections from, and my recollections were that this one was legitimately scary to a five-year-old Professor Allen. The special effects are ridiculous, laughable, and terrifying, including the bug-eye effect. The Baltans are legitimately creepy, scary aliens, and the story is compelling. An Ultraman slicing the giant Balton in half. I remember that vividly, 40-plus years later. This show is really hitting its stride at this point. Keep up the great work, Professor Allen. And, um... You can, uh, real quick, you can find Professor Allen at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, which is relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where he and his daughter Emily do all sorts of really good shows, the Quarterman Podcast, the Short Box Showcase, um, um, From Darkness to Light, which takes a look at religious issues in uh, in the pop culture and comics. Uh, thank you very much for writing in, Alan. That, yeah, that Bolton episode, it's, it's a weird episode because it's a fairly ambitious alien invasion plot that they do in 22 minutes. <laughs> and there is a lot of crazy effects, and the Bolton being cut in half is, is one I always remember, too. I used to have, long before the whole series was available on uh, here in the U.S., I had a VHS tape that I bought at a con, and it was called The Ultimate Battles of Ultraman, and it was a compilation tape that only showed the battles. So it was like all 39 episodes of just the fights with Ultraman fighting the monster. And I always remember him cutting the Bolton in half when I watched that tape. It's a lot of great fun. I need to break that tape out again. So I still have it. <laughs> it's sitting with all my other uh, uh, Daikaiju DVDs and tapes up in my bonus room. It brings back uh, memories buying that. But yeah, and the Boltons, I think they've they've stuck around because they really are... Uh, creepy aliens, and they're not as goofy-looking as some of the other alien races that would get a lot of play in the Ultra series. The Boltons, you know, look like, you know, creepy bugs, and the, uh, you know, they have that creepy laugh also. So I think they're, that's one of the reasons I think they've stuck around. Thank you very much for writing in, Professor Allen. All right, our next email comes from Dion Balisikin, and uh, Dion writes with the subject of uh, Daikaiju and Ultraman Convert. Hi, Luke. I have been a listener to your show since your Shin Godzilla episode. In fact, I want to say you wrote in regarding Shin Godzilla, so I'm glad you're sticking with the show. I have looked through your show history and cherry-picked the episodes that spotlight movies I have a memory of watching when I was younger. I have especially enjoyed your episodes on Ultraman, which used to air on a local station in Hawaii when I was in grade school. I'm not sure when the original Ultraman series aired in Japan, but the show and character was popular here in the mid-70s. 
Yeah, and I've and I've read that elsewhere. Just to jump out of the email for a minute, that it, yeah it was in the in the, the the mid to late seventies that Ultraman got the most play on local stations in Hawaii. And if, if as I understand it, a lot of Japanese television was actually ported over to Hawaii because it was a fair amount of Japanese speakers in the area, and it was something that was programming they could get because of um, you know just the way that. The distribution and everything at the time. So I remember, I want to say Kikaider also played on Hawaiian television. And I think Kamen Rider V3 also played on Hawaiian television around the same time to some other Japanese tokusatsu shows. Uh, Dion continues, your Godzilla comic reviews make me want to track down the series, but unfortunately my local comic shop does not have a great selection of back issues, especially titles from almost 40 years ago. Uh, if you can find that essential, pick that up. That'll get them all in one shot, and then you can work on getting the uh, uh, the individual issues. I ended up getting mine off of eBay, and I still don't have all of them. I'm missing a couple, uh, but I got most of them in a lot off of eBay. That may be your best bet. Keep up your good work, and I'm looking forward to future episodes. Regards, Dion. Balisican, Honolulu, Hawaii. First off, Dion, thank you very much for writing in. Really appreciate it. At this point, you are the farthest westmost listener that I have. You're almost so far west, you're almost east. So uh, that uh, very cool from a trivia standpoint. Also, please let me know if I'm butchering your last name. I'm, I'm, you know, for someone who has a ridiculous uh, to pronounce last name, mine, uh, you know, doesn't, you know, once you know how to say it, it's easy. But you know, if you look at it and you try and figure it out, sometimes you mess it up. So if I'm messing up your last name, I'm sorry. Glad you're enjoying the show. Hopefully we can uh, uh, open you up to some some films and shows maybe that you haven't seen. And uh, you can keep expanding your Daikaiju and Ultraman fandom as uh, as we examine through it. Thank you very much for writing in, Dion. And our last email for, t- for today comes from listener Rich S. And is simply entitled, Latest Episode. And Rich writes, Hi Luke. I just gave your latest episode a listen and was delighted to hear your response to my first letter. Yeah, for as long as I can remember, my dad has had the ability to fall asleep sitting up in a chair, especially when taking me to any movie that didn't hold his attention. In the past year or so, I seem to have gained this talent for myself of dozing off while sitting up, and it is to my dismay, as this is an inevitable sign of growing older. To his credit, my pop never got upset with me when waking him up during movies so that he would not miss the good parts. Yeah, there, there's something very comforting about being a man of a certain age and going and falling asleep and taking a nap in your recliner. <laughs> I have come to appreciate that myself as I have gotten older and I'm staring down the barrel of 40. Um, you know, we have now two recliners in our living room and, you know, every now and again we'll be watching something and that's it and I'm just out. Just sit there making dad noises for a little bit and then I'm asleep. But um, Back into uh, Rich's email. One film that both my parents took me to see in the 70s that I finally remember and hope you choose... Someday choose to review is Inframan. True, the monsters are not giant save for one, and its origins are not Japanese, but the f- kaiju trope. My mom laughed uproariously at the scene where Inframan, grown to giant proportions, smashed a human-sized BEM bug-eyed monster with his foot, complete disgust, complete with disgusting sound effects and green guts. The entire theater audience laughed as Inframan repeatedly chopped the head off the main villain, Princess Dragon Mom, which kept growing back. On the drive home, we saw a kid in the sidewalk doing kicks and karate chops, and again my parents laughed, saying, gee, I wonder what movie he just saw. It was, and still is a classic, one that even Roger Ebert liked. I hope you see fit to review it. Yeah, I think we're going to have to do Inframan. I've seen Inframan a long, long, long time ago. I don't remember any of it. Uh, that'll be a Gaiden episode at some point, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll cover um, Inframan, also known as Super Inframan, 
uh, in certain releases, if I'm remembering correctly. We'll definitely cover that. Thank you for bringing that up. I'll, I will add that onto my, you know, very fancy pants spreadsheet that I have vague uh, kind of columns of what films I'd like to cover up on the show. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that one. Rich continues, having said that, I applaud your choices of subject for review in the movies The Green Slime and The Last Dinosaur. Those are two films I never grew tired of watching on TV growing up, and the podcast episodes were a joy to my ears. Well, they were a, a great recording, too. Those were a lot of fun to record, both with my brother and Dr. Bill Robinson, and then the third one in that series with Frogs. I, I, those are, those are. I mean, if you're a certain age and you remember watching those a lot as a kid, those are great. I mean, objectively, we recognize that they're not, you know, they're not the greatest sorts of movies, but man, they are fun. They are so entertaining to watch. You know, And you know what's funny? I, I just got finished not too long ago watching season 11 of Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix, and they watched two others um, that might kind of fall into that category, one of which was on TV a lot more than the others. And that was The Land That Time Forgot from Amicus and one of their other uh, Edgar, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs adaptations, which was At the Earth's Core. The Land That Time Forgot was another one that was on TBS all the time. At the Earth's Core, a lot less. But I remember watching uh, The Land That Time Forgot a lot on TBS. So, uh, back to Rich's email. I was also happy to hear your plans to dissect the Devil Dinosaur comic series on the podcast. After the Marvel Godzilla, Devil Dinosaur was the second comic series I ever collected to completion. I and my childhood friends were always saying to each other, if only they would do a crossover with the Godzilla comic. But more on that later, yes? Speaking of which, do you think with the legendary film MonsterVerse gaining steam that perhaps Marvel will release a hardcore omnibus of the Godzilla series? It's not outside the realm of possibility. Looking forward to the next episode, listener Rich S. Rich, first off, thank you, thank you very much for writing in. Really appreciate that. And as far as a hardcover collection, an omnibus style of the Marvel Godzilla... That, see, that's the thing. We we did get the omnibus of Devil Dinosaur, which I bought and is fantastic, and I recommend to anybody. I think I said this when we did the Devil Dinosaur um, uh, house ad a couple issue a couple episodes back. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to get that. That we got the essential reprinted to me was still kind of amazing, because yes, Toho, you know, is getting a lot of exposure with Godzilla here in the West. You know, we've got uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters and then Godzilla vs. King Kong coming in the next couple of years. But at the same time, they, they never really seemed all that interested in revisiting that series. And if it's not something that they're going to directly be able to profit from, sometimes it's hard to gauge where Toho's going to go with it. You'd think that, you know, simply having Marvel pay them money to get the license to reprint a hardcover would be in Toho's best interest, because Marvel would be paying them a licensing fee. And yes, Marvel would be making money on the physical sales of the hardcover, and I guess the digital sales of the collection too, I suppose. But, you know, it, it's it's hard to predict how Toho's going to go with American comics. Sometimes they're really into it, and they go in kind of whole hog, and sometimes they are fairly inscrutable about it. So I don't know. I would really, personally, really like to see an omnibus. I mean, the essential is real nice. But, you know, it's still a soft cover, it's still on the newsprint style paper, and it's still black and white. So it, it's a great resource to have, to have it all in one place. Don't, you know, and I, I've espoused my, my affection for both uh, Marvel's Essentials and DC's Showcase programs, along with Dark Horse's similar black and white reprint series, uh, on many occasions in many different formats. But to have a color hardcover of this series would be a really nice thing, and I think they could sell a good amount of them. I mean... Even discounting 
the Godzilla fans that are going to buy anything, okay? Because there are Godzilla fans that will buy all the stuff that Diamond puts out every month. I think just something like this, which had a fair amount of crossover appeal, even to just regular Marvel Bronze Age readers, would probably sell pretty well. And uh, I, I said, I, I think I think it deserves it. it, it the material's good enough to deserve this. I mean, we've had so, lots of other crazy things put in Omnibus. So what I always point to is that The Crossing was in an Omnibus, and I own it. So I can't, I'm not even not even saying that it was, uh, you know, how, how, how dare they put this out. I mean, I bought it, so, you know, do with that information what you will. But uh, like I said, I'd like to see it from, from your lips to Marvel's ears, Rich. That's all I have to say about that. Thank you very much for writing in. Hope you're continuing to enjoy the show. Well, now we come to the portion of the program where we are have to ask the question, what are we going to be talking about next time? So, next time on Earth Destruction Directive, we're going to be talking about some video games, which we have not talked about in quite a while. And what we're going to be talking about is Ultraman video games, specifically the two Ultraman video games that I own, which are both imports, both for Nintendo Game Boy systems. We're going to be taking a look first at the original Ultraman, for the original Game Boy, original gray cartridge, GB, uh, as it is called. And uh, that one is an adaption of the similar type of game which was released on the Super Nintendo and actually did get an official release over here at Stateside. And we're also going to be taking a look at the um, at the Ultraman Ultra Fight game, which was released on the Game Boy Advance. Again, only in Japan, uh, but no region lock on Game Boys mean that you can play import games just fine. This is a, a more traditional style fighting game, um, featuring not only Ultraman, but also multiple monsters for you to play as, and multi- multiple Ultra Heroes for you to play as. So, very cool. We'll also be taking a look at the next issue of Marvel Godzilla, which will be issue 12, as we have finished up our story here involving Yetragar and the Red Ronin, and we are moving in a different direction. It'll be interesting to see where the story goes from here. And, of course, any news or developments on any of the new uh, Daikaiju movies that are in development, whether it be Godzilla King of the Monsters, King Kong, or Godzilla vs. King Kong, Pacific Rim 2, the new Godzilla anime, Anything coming out, we will have that news for you here. And anything else that we, uh, that I come across that fits the mold of what we do here on Earth Destruction Directive, we will get that information to you. So I want to thank everyone once again for downloading and listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please come back next time. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast. Produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. 
And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.